In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. If I had to choose between ice cream and salad, and I do like both, it'd be ice cream in a heartbeat. If I had to choose between a week at the ocean or in the mountains, and I like them both, but it's the ocean every time. We make choices all the time, and sometimes we're lucky and we don't need to. Salad first and then ice cream. But sometimes even simple choices flummox us. What do you want for dinner? I don't know. What do you want? I don't know. What do you want? And on it goes. Both Moses and Jesus are offering choices, offering them by way of forewarning. For Moses and the people standing within sight of the promised land, a land many thought they would never see after 40 years in the wilderness, his words remind them that while their journey is ending, their new life is just beginning. They won't be dealing with the torments of the desert, but there will be choices, some of them tormenting ahead. New place, new customs, new beliefs. Make your decision. Will you stick with the Lord who brought you to this land or succumb to the temptations that come with this land of milk and honey? Moses clearly states that one decision leads to life and one to death, but he knows it won't seem so obvious which is which once they settle in. Yes, by all means, choose life, but remember that means following the narrow path of serving God and God alone. The people make their choice, they choose life, but it didn't stick, not for all of them, because you can't choose God just once. That choice must be made over and over and over again. The multitudes around Jesus are not unlike those standing at the edge of the promised land. Jesus had been preaching and teaching for a while now. They had seen him not just teach, but teach with authority. They'd seen him heal the apparently unhealable. He'd seen them take on Pharisees and feed 5,000. Fair to say they're pretty excited. Jesus is a celebrity, and the crowds want to be part of his entourage. Now he knows what's ahead for him, but they do not. Jesus also knows what's ahead for them if they take up that cross and follow him, but they haven't got a clue. So he gives them a vision, a vision both harsh and hyperbolic, I'm sure he got their attention, as he does ours. Unless you hate your mother and your father, your spouse and your children and your siblings and even life itself, you cannot follow me. Say what? Hate is quite a word. 
I'm not sure, though, that we'd feel better with any of the alternatives, disown, say, walk away from, deny. Did Jesus mean it? Yes, I actually think he did. But to understand his call and his claim on us, it may help to see what is on either side of this particular section in Luke's Gospel. Just before he tells a parable, one many of us have heard, I expect, in which a king throws a banquet and invites his guests. Each invitee declines with one increasingly flimsy excuse after another. Oh, sorry, I have some land I have to check on. Oh, sorry, I have another engagement, and so on, until the exasperated host tells his servants to go and get whoever is in the highways and byways and have them come instead. An image of the heavenly banquet filled not with the usual expected guests, the holy and the righteous and the right kind of people, but rather a table surrounded and filled by people usually overlooked or judged in our world. Hold that image. Then after the story, we move into chapter 15, which begins with one of the most familiar of all Bible stories, the parable in which a shepherd leaves 99 sheep to go find the one who is lost. A parable about the preciousness of each one of us and a story we love, even if it was, in fact, bad shepherding, sheep herding. Those brackets, those two stories, remind us of two essential tenets of the Christian faith. We are meant to choose God, not just when it's convenient, but always. And that God, no matter how lost we are, is always choosing us. I think that will help. It also helps to remember that in one, at one point in his ministry, Jesus was told that his mother and brothers and sisters were looking for him, and his response was not, oh dear, please let them know where I am. But instead, he said, who are my mother and my brother and my sisters? They are those who do the will of God. But we also know that when he was dying on the cross, he carried, he looked down at his mother and upon one of his disciples and entrusted them to one another so that they would form a new family, a new community. That was surely love, not hate. So I spent time this week thinking about my own loves, my own family, and my own faith. Do I think Jesus means me to hate my child or my spouse or my siblings? No, I don't, but I'm fortunate. I'm fortunate in that none of them seek to keep me from following Jesus or push me to make choices in opposition to what I believe. That is not true for every Christian. That is not true in every family. If they did, would I have to tell them that despite their opposition, I was going to follow Jesus 
and walk away from them? Yes, I think I would. As the Israelites learn, choosing God is not a one-time event. I think that is why we need to count the cost as we consider following Jesus. Now, Jesus lived in a time very different from our own, so there were realities he doesn't mention, but that I think I must. His followers did not have careers. They worked, though. They worked as stonemasons or carpenters, as fishermen or farmers. Now, such work would not prevent them from choosing Jesus, though many of them had to leave that work in order to follow him. But while there are risks for all of us in terms of family demands and expectations, many of us must wrestle as well with our choice to follow Jesus and how that fits with our careers, our work, our ambitions. Does it make demands on us or involve work that actually opposes the gospel? Can we do our work and claim that in that work we truly respect every human being? Does the work we do diminish or enhance the lives of others? The tax collectors know what those questions are like. There were two in Jesus' orbit. One who sought out Jesus had to make some reparations before he could be a disciple, and the other left the work behind entirely, renounced it to follow Jesus. They faced hard choices. Maybe we do too. Jesus also did not live in a world where his followers had what we call disposable income. That was the purview of kings and emperors. His disciples caught fish and fed their families. Their carpentry allowed them to buy food at the market and build their homes. Many in this country similarly live hand to mouth or paycheck to paycheck, including some here at St. James. But many of us do not. We have money to spend after the bills are paid. And understand Jesus was no killjoy. He was known for eating and drinking with sinners, emphasis on eating and drinking just as much as on keeping company with sinners. The gospel, after all, means good news. It can and should actually bring us joy, not just in the knowledge and love of God or in some spiritual sense, but in our daily lives. But we do need to ask, do we spend our money only for our own sake and our own pleasure or for the sake and pleasure of those we love? Or do we use it, share it generously, give it for the sake of the world and for people for whom it could be life-changing or life-giving, though we will never know who those people are? Do we give money only after we have all that we want or give up some of what we want? so that others can have what they need. There will be decisions. There will be choices in every day of our lives. We do indeed, as Jesus tells the crowd, 
need to count the cost. But as everyone who has and keeps choosing Jesus will tell you, and as I will tell you, it is so worth it. Amen.